Pace Line is checking Garmin files in Strava uploads looking for the hardest ride we've ever done. Safety in the Pro Peloton is again in the spotlight. And SRAM's new big cassette has a group set to go with it. We fly like an eagle on the Pace Line. The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels with three hosts, fresh off another edition of Trainer Road, is Fatty of FatCyclist.com. Oh, man. Good to be riding with you guys. How is Trainer Road going? Everything uh, back up to speed? Well, it, you know, I had the most miserable cold last week and um, found that if I was trying to uh, do anything beyond just, you know, very low-level aerobic exercise that I would just have a cough that would just leave me floored for the rest mm -hmm. of the day. So I did the uncharacteristic thing for me, backed off, and mostly recovered. I'm back on the bike as of uh, a couple of days ago, and oh man, it, it just feels so good to ride again. Yeah. Man, it's an, an enforced vacation from the bike is a horrible thing. Maturity, that's what we would like to see in our uh, podcast host here on the Pace Line. Uh, RedKitePrayer.com is one of the other places you can find the Pace Line and, of course, the place to track down Patrick Brady. Howdy. Nice to be here. Good to have you guys along again. Uh, we're going to start off, unfortunately, guys, with some serious news uh, out of the Pro Peloton. It's heading into the Tour of Flanders this weekend, and with it, it will carry a couple of heavy subjects. First, there's... Uh, the threat of terrorism that has put most of Europe on high alert with raids being carried out in Brussels. And then this past Sunday, one of their own died following a crash. His name was Antoine de Montier. He rode for, I think, what is a continental, a pro-continental team, Patrick? A Wante yeah. Group Gobert? Yeah. Um, uh, de Montier uh, died of his injuries at a hospital after he was struck hours earlier during Ghent Webelgem. He was from Liège. He was 25. He crashed with four other riders with about 115K to go during the race, uh, race's brief loop into France. And then as he was on the ground, he was uh, reportedly struck by a following race motorbike. Uh, there have been you know, lots of reaction, of course, to this crash at Ghent Webelgem. Uh, first from his team, they are thanking everyone for their overwhelming support. These are tweets that we were reading this morning. The team is touched by all the messages. We will bounce back and ride for Antoine. From Mark Cavendish, such tragic news. Rest in peace, Antoine. Thoughts and condolences are with your family, friends, and teammates. Now, of course, the, some of the riders are taking issue with what happened. Michael Rogers asked in a tweet, Must tragic circumstances be the marker for change? Please, UCI, your writers need you now. And um, there have been press releases as well from the Professional Cyclists Association calling for lessons to be learned after the tragic death of Demotier, the president of that union, saying about the terrible accident that caused the death of the writer at Kent Webergham, the CPA and all the writers demand to shed immediate light on the accident and the circumstances that have caused it, as well as any other responsible involved parties. Now, Demotier's team director says the moto was not to blame in this case. They call it a tragic accident. The moto has uh, 20 years of experience. Uh, guys, first of all, this is a heck of a way to head into what is one of the biggest races of the season, Tour of Flanders. Again, like we said earlier, lots of issues surrounding Belgium and racing at this point. Uh, this is just nasty stuff. Patrick, what have we learned anything yet about um, first of all, this accident, which I doubt we have, but about the safety of the pro peloton as it stands right now. Well, you know, nobody's talking about this yet. I've read a number of pieces out there, and there's a, a really fine piece uh, by Neil Rogers uh, addressing this. But, you know, no one's talking about the change in behavior uh, of the caravan. You know, if you go back and watch uh, race coverage from the 80s and 90s, you didn't see motos coming by the riders a foot away going, you know, 20 miles per hour faster than they're going. I've certainly seen uh, in, you know, in video coverage, I, I've, I've seen passes that would have upset me uh, due to their uh, incredible proximity and difference in speed. And 
you know, old coverage, I don't see that. And so there's been a definite change in terms of what's acceptable within the caravan. Add to that the incredible rise in the number of vehicles, the number of motos uh, in the Peloton. There were tweets about, you know, uh, the number of guys in a group, you know, uh, fewer than 10 riders in a group surrounded by 15 photographers' motorcycles. And it's just kind of ridiculous. Uh, something needs to be done to curtail that. Uh, I went back and did a small count of the number of deaths in pro cycling in the last 12 months. And certainly I, I may have missed some stuff. Uh, or, uh, uh, sorry, not the number of deaths. Uh, the number of injuries caused by vehicles in the in the peloton, and there were nine injuries I found just in the last twelve months. Um, it's it, it, something's got to be done, um, and I think everyone can plug into this when they think back on the televised coverage of the Tour de France and Johnny Hogerland's uh, crash. You know, sending him into the barbed wire. Uh, this this just isn't acceptable. Yeah, it's nice to have the up-close coverage, Fatty, and to be able to see every pedal turn and every feed and every conversation between a director and his riders. But at some point, we have to ask, as fans, first of all, don't we, how much do we need to see? Do, do they need to be so close? Could we establish a buffer for these guys? Yeah, the safety of the riders can't be the paramount or it has to be a paramount concern. It can't be something that is subjugated to a you know, second-order concern, something that is not as important as getting the great shot. Also, there are technology solutions that would allow us to get great footage without even having anyone uh, on a moto. There's, it would be possible to broadcast from the cyclists themselves at this point. Um, you know, make it all point of view shots. If, for those of us who really care, why not do it that way? You know, go you know, use technology, get creative, and keep it safe. Don't have this huge disparity in mass and volume and weight of vehicles on the road. Yeah, I think what's being made here, a good case that is, is for drones. Hello, how about uh, just getting some of those cameras up above the riders? It can still mm-hmm. get close. They're very small. They're probably not going to bring a rider down the way a motorcycle can. Yeah. Does that mean fewer people might be employed by the race because you have guys with joysticks operating these things? Possibly, but it could clear out some of the traffic involved uh, as the pro peloton is, is rambling down the highway. So I think drones have, have got another yeah. case here um, in, in the coverage of pro cycling. Yeah, these incidents have spawned a campaign called Hashtag Enough is Enough, and there is a video to go with that in support of uh, vehicles in the pro peloton, or rather against pro uh, vehicles in the pro peloton running into and sometimes running down riders. And it begins, as you mentioned, Patrick, with one of the nastiest crashes we've ever seen on tape, that of Johnny Hugerlin being sent into a barbed wire fence at the Tour de France. Here's a little part of that campaign that's been out there called enough is enough a car just didn't see me he just turned left and i couldn't avoid him anymore so i crashed it's 55k on the car luckily my girlfriend is behind me sergeant is okay he's certainly not here let's have a quick look oh that's why my goodness well no wonder they pulled to the side of the road wow I think you get the picture there. Pretty dramatic videos of riders being knocked over by motos. Um, Jonathan Vodder's actually, uh, this was before the crash this weekend at Ghent Welvegum, said that riders need to be careful about what they're asking for here, that to try and get rid of some of the coverage and some of the cameras. Uh, would not be good for their career. He said reducing the number of TV motos and media vehicles would cause a race to fade to obscurity. He said while removing uh, commissaires, vehicles would result in a Mad Max version of cycling and taking away team cars would leave riders without supports. We have at least one voice who says, look, uh, we understand this is a crowded situation in the Peloton, but it's a necessary situation. You guys agree with any of that? Uh, Vauders is just crazy. I mean, that that's just 
that's over the top and ridiculous. Uh, you don't need a dozen photographers chasing a breakaway of four guys. You know, I've I've done a little bit of courtroom uh, reporting, and you know, when a courtroom's tight, not every journalist gets in there, and there's a thing known as pooling. You know, everyone uh, everyone gets access to whatever photos were shot or whatever video was shot. Uh, in case you can't have every single uh, photographer and videographer in the courtroom, uh, that way, you know, we have coverage, and you know, you still get to be. Uh, you know, get to have uh, representation of the event uh, at your media outlet, uh, but maybe it wasn't your designated photographer. This is a reasonable thing. The rider's safety really can't be at risk by the caravan. That's just completely unacceptable. Yeah, what good what good does it do to have riders on the ground uh, and and injured and unable to race? You know, because of, of accidents or crashes. Or, or too much traffic they're trying to get around in a particular race. And you can tell that the frustration is, is there. It's been there for a long time, the way the riders wave cameras out of the way, wave motos out of the way. So they've clearly had enough. And now it's just whether their their organizational structure can address this issue and, and take on, you know, what really is their own publicity at times and, and try and regulate it a little bit. I think it's a tough road ahead. Uh, for all involved in this issue. All right, guys, as we play a little music here, ponder this. What is the hardest ride you have ever done? Not easy, huh? That's next on The Pace Line. The Pace Line, Fatty, Patrick, and Michael Houghton here. You know, there are hard rides, and then there are hard rides. You ride long enough in life, and your resolve will be challenged. Do I stop, or do I keep going? Better yet, when the weather looks like hell, do I even bother? <laughs> the Pace Line now presents the hardest ride you have ever done. And Patrick, we are going to start with you, because I believe yours happened pretty recently. Yeah, uh, so another edition of the uh, Grasshopper Adventure Series, this one, Chileno Valley, uh, it was just two weeks ago, and um, <laughs> uh, it was about 50 degrees and raining at the start, or well, the start, it hadn't quite started raining yet, but it did very shortly thereafter, but uh, basically the enti- entire day uh, was filled uh, with rain, and wind, unlike I've ever raced in, save maybe one or two other occasions. Uh, so sideways rain. Um, on top of that, of course, it was 80 miles long with uh, 8,000 feet of climbing. And uh, I had a buddy I was riding with um, who flatted early. And so for a big chunk of the day, the two of us were utterly by ourselves, just trading poles. Um and the thing was, you know, I didn't get to the to the end completely shattered, but Sunday night, you know, a full night after this, I barely slept that night because my upper body was so sore from uh, what I, I, I suppose was me fighting the bike to keep going straight in all of the wind and rain. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a section out there in Valley Ford where I was doing... 5.1 miles per hour into a headwind of rain. Uh, it was, was all I could bike, do. Folks. Yeah. Yeah. It was on the seven, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I went with, uh, the seven because of disc brakes. I wanted to make sure I could stop on this, uh, near the bottom of the descents or in the turns. And I went with 35 millimeter tires, uh, just to make sure I could have traction. There were four different places where there was standing water in the course, uh, one of them up over my feet. Um, I just, I've never seen anything quite like that in my life. And I've done some really hard rides, but none that lasted for six hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it's one of those that just has me scratching my head because somehow I found a headspace in there where I was utterly copacetic with it all. Um, I got to the finish, dare I say, sort of happy. 
Uh, and that's actually having screwed up the last turn that I so that I wasn't even uh, an official finisher. <laughs> so you did the hardest ride of your life and you didn't show up on the results? I am not an official finisher. Oh, no. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. Yeah, no, you know the race organizer, though. I do. I can lobby him. I know Miguel. I'll, I'll get him. I'll, I'll mad you. But, you know, that's the funny thing. It's like I'm so satisfied with how the day went that it just doesn't even bother me. I I went someplace that I've never been before and found something somewhere inside me unlike anything I think I've ever it's unlike any other place I've gone previously in an event. And so being an official finisher won't grant me something that I haven't already achieved. Yeah. So That's... the hardest and also the most satisfying. Maybe. I, it, I think those things go hand in hand. It's, it's a really, it's a different sort of, uh, you know, dare I say achievement. It's a, um, I don't know. It's a, a a dimension of of depth or whatever that I yeah I simply haven't gone there before. Um, somehow, I mean, there were times where I was just kind of laughing at at just how ridiculous the conditions were. Um, it but it just it never really bothered me. I was I was warm, you know. I had control of my bike. Everything was fine. Um, but then, yeah, 36 hours later, I barely slept through the night because my upper body was so sore. Now, before we go to Fatty, uh, a recent uh, Fatty cast I was listening to, uh, a guest he talked to about what was her or what seemed like her hardest ride. Madeline Bemis, the phenom, U23 24-hour world champ who uh, got her uh, rainbow stripes down in New Zealand re- uh, recently, recalled riding through the night uh, during that event recently and uh, talked with Fatty about it on the Fatty cast. Here's what Madeline said about a portion of that ride, the night portion, which seemed just crazy and very hard. Over the last month or so, I've developed ingrown toenails oh, no. that only hurt after a ride. Mm-hmm. And so during the ride, I experienced little to no pain. But as soon as I would stop to eat, the pain became just unbearable until I started riding again. And oh, so wow. for this reason, I decided that riding at this point was going to be the best option mm-hmm. um, for me. And so looking back now, I'm glad I didn't sleep. So, yeah, so I just kept powering through. I tried to keep consistent laps. I had started actually hallucinating at this point, which is something <laughs> that that I had dreaded. I was seeing cyclists in, in the ferns, and I could hear... I could hear tires against the ground and the and then gear shifting behind me. But time and time again, I looked back and I didn't see anybody. And yeah. then the roots on the ground looked like snakes and alligators and oh, mice. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it was just bizarre. I never have that before. So, so you've got imaginary riders behind you. You've got snakes in front of you. It, it yeah, sounds pretty I, freaky. I wasn't scared. I had always thought uh-huh. I would have been scared of it. But they weren't scary, just just like you said. They're just strange. Yeah, too tired to be scared. Ingrown toenails and hallucinations. Mm. That is a hard ride. But, Fatty, can <laughs> you top that? Oh, you know, I'm not sure that I can top it because it, we, in other parts of that story, and, you know, definitely go back to the Fatty cast and listen to the whole Madeline Bemis recounting of her 24-hour uh, world champ effort there, uh, and note that she is 17 years old. Right, that's worth that's worth underscoring. Um, but I would say that my most difficult rides are also of the uh, at least 24 hour variety. Uh, I'm trying to mentally choose between either the time I raced the what is called Salt to Saint which is a road bike race from Salt Lake City to St. George. Um, and uh, most people do that as a relay. A few years ago, my wife and I each did that solo, uh, riding the entire thing together as a pair. Um, or the uh, a couple of years ago, I did the 25 hours of Frog Hollow. It's a 25-hour race instead of 24-hour race because they have it over the time change. That's its gimmick. Um, and in both <laughs> cases, it was the 
it was equipment that was really the pain for me. Uh, the, and I, I really only have one memory of uh, that really sticks out from the 25-hour race at Frog Hollow. Now, that's in St. George. It is mountain biking, and it is on sandstone and lots of lots of not big drops not incredibly technical but it is jarring you are constantly hitting you know pretty rough bumps and i was doing this on a rigid single speed um and my wrists um were ruined by the end of that race to the point where they've never been the same um Anything over a three-hour ride to this day uh, leaves my wrists in serious pain. So I mean that that race literally changed me. It you know I I have had permanent effects from riding for 25 hours with a rigid single speed in um, extremely rough choppy conditions for 25 hours. Um, I did I did make the podium though, so it's worth it, right? <laughs> oh, so th- to this day, you feel the effects of your hardest ride ever. Every single every single time I am out for more than two or three hours, my wrists begin to ache. I begin to have a very difficult time shifting, you know, for the big throw to the big ring on a road bike. After three or four hours, that is an effort that is very difficult for me to make because my wrists are have been, yeah, they're messed up. Uh, thanks to that ride, and, and um, does this uh, does this put a smile on your face, or do you cuss out loud? I, I, you know, mostly I just feel foolish. It's not like there was a rigid single speed division. There was a single speed division. I was just being, um, I was being, I don't know, foolish, arrogant, cocky. Call it what you will. There was no good reason to race that as a guy in my mid 40s on a rigid fork i should have had suspension just being aware that hey i'm mortal and doing that for that long was a dumb idea um so i i'm proud of the fact that i held myself together and i'm appreciative of the um of my crew uh, one of which was a uh, a doctor who did a incredible job of taping up my wrists so that I had some extra support for the final five hours of the race. Um, but I was just being dumb. I so it was, it was painful because I was stupid is really what it came down to. Um, more proud, uh, because there was nothing stupid about what we did was the, um, the race from salt, uh, from Salt Lake city to St. George. My wife is the only woman who has ever done that solo to this day. Um, And um, thanks to a little bit of collaboration, she beat me by three seconds. So she was not only the women's record holder, but she was the winner of the solo division uh, that year. Um, And that was a, a hard day out there. And part of it I blame on Alan Lim, um, he, <laughs> we, okay. we put, uh, we put a lot of stock in, uh, his, uh, his portables cookbook. I'm forgetting the title right then, which is a fantastic cookbook, but we, um, we had been experimenting with a lot of the baked versions as opposed to the rice cake versions of the portable foods. And while the rice cake, uh, the, the rice cake recipes, I've had nothing but great, uh, success with some of the more baked things boy after eight or nine hours of eating those it, uh, I, I remember just unloading my pockets I just I took everything out and I was just throwing them into our support vehicle as we went by can't eat this anymore can't eat this anymore can't eat this anymore give me something else it doesn't matter what wow um so I, it, it's it, it's almost impossible to really understand what you know. What are you going to be able to eat after you've been riding nonstop? You know, literally nonstop. We would put a foot down to pee and to refill our pockets, and that's really about all we did. But what can you eat at hour twenty three? What are you able to put in your mouth without having a gag reflex? And it turns out it was not those kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, for for me. Um, 
the only thing I found that I was able to consistently eat was just uh, rolls with a lot of mayo on them. Um, yeah. You know, the, the mayo, because it helped me, you know, I, I had no saliva left. I, you know, I was so dehydrated. You couldn't drink enough to keep, you know, to, to stay hydrated. So the mayo um, was basically used as lube to get, so that I could, <laughs> oh, so wow. that I could, so that I could get something down my mouth. But, you oh. know, so it, it's, what's funny it, with these, you know, hardest races ever, the things that stick in your head, the things of, you know, the difficulty, the, you know, what, what was hard, you know, is it an ingrown toenail? Is it, um, you know, is it the, uh, the fact that, um, we had been riding for 10 hours, uh, on our specialized shivs, riding behind each other, you know, taking turns pulling and, you know, on these aero bikes, you, you can get quite a bit of, uh, of advantage, you know, two aero bikes together, but then you realize five hours into it that, you know, the specialized shiv is not a bike that is meant to be ridden for five hours. <laughs> and switching to a, a traditional road bike at that point felt like going to a sofa. Like, oh, wow. Mm. I had forgotten how much more comfortable a regular road bike is. You just don't even realize it. But, yeah, the... The, the difficulty of eating and the the pain of riding in a certain position on a certain kind of bike um, of uh, briefly nodding off on a sweeping downhill um, those are the things that I'll always remember about that and wow. I have a huge amount of pride that you know we finished it you know 28 28 hours of riding um, and just a you know a brutally difficult course and we never we never took more than brief pauses and we knocked out that 450 miles so i am incredibly proud of uh, our hardest ride ever and that i've and that my wife did it with me that we did that together well for me it's actually <laughs> i have two i had a hard time picking here but they are both races uh, one was um, a regular race up in an area called Punch Bowl, which is not far from Los Angeles. It's about yep. 90 minutes from here. Beautiful park up in the high desert Antelope Valley area. It's a race put on by the UCLA uh, cycling team there called UCLA Punch Bowl. They actually used to do two events up there. This was the first one. It was in February. We arrived up there, and I, I think this was three years ago, four years ago, something like that. I can't even remember the exact year. We arrived up there. We had a 1.30 start time. The day looked okay. The weather forecast was iffy, but when we got up there, things looked actually pretty good. The skies were fairly clear. The sun had been out. Other races had completed, and the racers were dry, and things looked fine. We were called to the line, and as we were called to the line, I mean, it was like it was on cue. The, the clouds, the cloud cover started blanketing the race. The clouds started forming. The temperature dropped. And we're at about, uh, well, we climbed to about 4,500 feet in the race. So the clouds start forming. The ref, chief referee blows his whistle. We got 500 meters up the road. It doesn't start raining. It starts snowing. It's a four-lap race. Not great length. I mean, I think the thing is um, 50 to 55 miles, something like that. But it is an up one of those. You climb, you descend. You climb, you descend. You do a you know a two thousand foot climb, you descend again. So we had six sixty five hundred feet of climbing on the menu, about fifty miles, and it snowed and it snowed the whole time. Um, the, the one upside about snow, I have to say, as opposed to rain, is that snow brushes off rain. <laughs> it really doesn't. It just really soaks you. So I get, it was the one positive I drew out of of racing in the snow. Um, the snow wasn't bad enough that it stuck on the road, so we were safe. It wasn't like this race we saw a few weeks ago on the Pro Peloton where they had to call off the stage because riders were sliding all over the place. So the snow wasn't sticking, but it was enough you know, that in pictures you could tell it was snowing. And I think I got on the, the last lap. We were headed for me and a couple other guys were headed for – the last lap, and I turned over my shoulder and said to one of the guys I knew, "Hey, you want to go? You want to go for another? Let's let's finish it." Said we'd been dropped by then; the leaders had taken off. I said, "Hey, you want to you want to finish this thing off?" And he looked at me and said, "No way." And he pulled out, and I 
I did complete the race. Um, I kind of have this thing. I don't like DNFs. They really bother me. So I finished a race. Now, it doesn't sound so bad. Here's the deal, though. Um, we drove down out of uh, Punchbowl and down into the Antelope Valley where I met with a couple of teammates. You know, one of the teammates said that he raced so hard that his that his junk was in pain. I mean, he just was ruined down there. Um, and had another two teammates who had plans to go uh, up to Northern California from there for a race the following morning. And they said to me, Michael, come on, let's let's go race up at Pine Flat. Oh, and yeah. We had finished our snow race at about 4.30 in the afternoon. This is now 5. Pine Flat is another couple hours away in car. Um, we needed dinner. And they said, come on. And one guy said, uh, look, I've got a room. We can stay pretty close. You can stay in the room. I won't, you know, come up there and, and let's go race Pine Flat. Pine Flat was an 8 a.m. start. Somehow I agreed to this. And we drove up the Pine Flat with a stop in Bakersfield along, along the way for a steak. We get up to the room in the area, open the door. There's three of us now, and there are two beds. And I was like, ah, oh, guess who is sleeping on the floor? <laughs> so, with a 50-mile snowbound race in my legs and a lot of sleep in my eyes, I cuddled up on the floor with a pillow and some blanket out of the closet. And tried to get a little sleep. The next morning we got up. Uh, luckily, the weather had cleared. Um, but we were in Pine Flat, a good NorCal throwdown. You know the race, Patrick. Yep. And somehow, I don't know how, uh, I got into the break. <laughs> got into the break and uh, didn't win. Um, but uh, managed to stay away for uh, almost to the end. We got caught by the group at the end. But that was a punishing two days of, of racing to, to do a snow race, a race in the snow that ended at 4.30 in the afternoon and what, less than 16 hours later or about 18 hours later, no, 16 hours later, we were lined up again uh, ready to race in a what is a pretty good throwdown up in Northern California. So you, very you, tough. You need to tell people a little bit about that course. I mean, okay, What's so that? well, okay, so Punch Bowl is up, down, up, down. It's a big stair-step climb with a really fast uh, descent and then just a few rollers before you're back on that climb. But Pine Flat is like a, it's a real point-to-point road race uh, with a terribly difficult climb in it. You, you need to tell people a little more about that. <laughs> well, you mean the finishing climb? Where you, uh, the last, I think, kilometer, well, inside a K, it goes above 10%, I know that, as you as you hit the finish. Um, actually, you know, it is a hard race. It's got a good climb in it. I, I thoroughly enjoy the course because of the way it's laid out, and it is point-to-point. Point. Now, the point, the start line and the finish line are actually fairly close together, but the way the organizer has it mapped out, you do have to ride back to the finish, which is, what, about 15 miles or something oh, like that. Oh, it's only eight but, miles away. Yeah, it's not yeah, super it's, far. You know, it's not super far, and... The climb is, I think the punch bowl climb is actually tougher because it's kind of a longer grind. Um, but the Pine Flat course is a super good road racing course. Uh, of course, you don't maybe feel that way if you've raced in the snow the day before. But <laughs> certainly a good day to get away and, uh, geez, I wish I could have pulled it off. But heck, it was the hardest couple of races I'd ever done. So my other, my, my close second would have to be a Belgian Waffle Ride 2015 last year. Um, I, uh, this was the second time I'd done Belgian waffle ride. This baby is 130, I think in North San Diego County. It was put on at the time by spy optics and Michael Marks. Um, he still has the, the race ride going, although he's left spy. Um, and his, I mean, this is a ride he intentionally makes very, very difficult. It is road and dirt but designed to be completed on a road bike, and most people use road bikes with some slightly bigger, tougher tires, bigger tires. Um, the climbing is over 10,000 feet, although it's nothing really long and sustained. You're just kind of constantly getting hit with another roller or another two, three kilometer climb. Um, and at the near the end, there's a climb called Double Peak, 
which takes you to a picturesque spot in North San Diego County. But getting up there, it's a it's over 12 percent um, from actually much of the way. So you're just grinding up that thing. But the deal, the, the thing that made it so difficult is I actually got because of my category status into the front wave of uh, Belgian Waffle Ride t- 2015, mm. which meant I was going off with some pretty good names um, and trying to stay in touch. So we were getting not only uh, you know nice pacing, but we were also getting um, traffic support through, 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 through traffic lights, which meant you could just kept, keep going. There was no reason to really stop. And we did. Even though I got split off the main group, the front group, um, I found a good pack of guys and we rolled. And we kept rolling. And we did not stop our bicycles once for over six and a half hours. Riding continued. I mean, didn't stop to go to the bathroom. Didn't stop to take a feed. Nothing. The pe- the feet were clipped into the pedals for over six and a half hours, 130 miles, whatever it was, um, um, of the Belgian what, waffle ride. Did you have wow. a third bottle with you? What'd you do about hydration? No, there were people on the course handing up bottles and food. Nice. Oh, okay. All right. In fact, people show... The great thing about Belgian Waffle Ride and what's happened there is it's become kind of a community event. I mean, people do actually show up. Um, it's a bit like uh, Fire Road is fatty up in Utah. You know, the, yeah. the, the local folks that show up and like hand you water and food. That was mm-hmm. going on at Belgian Waffle Ride. In addition, there were the, there were the you know, the, the BWR food stops feed zones and the folks there were very good about hey this is a front group coming through let's hand them on the fly and i had tabs and enough food in my pockets that i was able to make it i was put i was dropping you know hydration tabs in my bottles as we were riding along and doing the pro peloton relieving yourself just like they do um so yeah over six and a half hours riding and stayed clipped in the whole time so that is a close second for hardest ride of the year. Do, guys, what do you think about what organizers, speaking of you know, hard rides, hardest rides, is there, since there's a competition going on here between some of these organizers to make their ride the hardest thing you've ever done and almost taking it to extremes? Well, you know, Michael Marks is certainly pursuing that mantle uh, of hardest ride ever. Um, I mean, he's deliberately out there. And there was another guy, uh, Rick... I don't recall his last name. He was producing a ride in the Sierras uh, called the, uh, well, originally it was the Son of the Death Ride, and then he got a little uh, C&D letter and uh, started looking for a replacement. I suggested uh, uh, the Ride of the Immortals, um, mm-hmm. and uh, it would start on the uh, on the eastern side of the Sierra, cross all the way over until you could basically climb in the Kern River if you wanted, uh, climb back up Sherman Pass across the Sierra and back down to the start point. 134 miles, I believe it was, 17,000 yep. feet of I've climb. I've done the ride with you, in fact, yeah. Oh, right, right. Yep. And and that's, that's in my top three for hardest rides ever. Um, but, yeah, we, uh, had, we had one of our guys, I think, uh, get dizzy at the top of Sherman Pass coming back. And we did have to rescue him, I believe. Do uh, you remember Dave? Yeah. He ended up falling, I believe, coming down the descent back into the valley. Yeah, ran off the road. So, yep. Yeah. He so, so I mean, that's a that that's another nominee for, you know, a hardest ride out there uh, among, you know, people who are actually uh, chasing that. But, I mean, gosh, I, I hope there aren't that many race organizers or event organizers who are actively chasing that. Fatty, have you ever run into a ride where you thought that that's too much, too extreme, that they're, they're trying to do too much? You know, I haven't. Um, I think to the races that I've done that are really hard, were really hard because I selected the option that made them hard. You know, I, I just told you about Salt to Saint. Most people ride that as a relay with up to six people per team. You know, those people don't have to ride more than 25, 30 miles at a time. And, you know, people who are pretty casual about the bike do that, and they have a lot of fun. We chose to make that race incredibly hard. For the 25 hours of Frog Hollow, like most 24, 25-hour races, there are, you know, a near infinite number of combinations you can do that where 
you can uh, do it as part of a one, a two, a three, a four, or five person team. Um, or the, some people or some races have corporate teams where there can be up to eight people. It can be, I, I, I like the idea of putting together an interesting course and then making it so that you get to select the level of difficulty yourself. Enjoy it at the level that you want to. And I, you know, just sort of as an aside for Levi's Grand Fondo, I feel like they have taken that to a completely new level. Mm -hmm. The number of combinations that you could ride that uh, that event last year, I'm, I'm not even sure how many there were. Lisa and I went chose to do the original, you know, sort of the the original straight up 100 mile course but i think we might have been in the minority there were there were 20 to 30 to 40 to all the way to 120 mile versions of that ride and it wasn't doing a whole bunch of different loops it was taking different roads and really seeing the area and it, it was and i know patrick you took one of the more difficult uh, versions of the ride. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we all had, we all had the fun that we wanted to have. So I, I, I like that kind of, uh, that kind of provision from a race organizer. Here's a great set of courses or a course. And here are numerous options for you to, you know, you to scratch whatever itch you happen to have. I did a ride like that just last week. The Redland Strada Rosa wrote about it on RKP. Mm. Um, it was a gravel ride. There was a 100-mile version, but certainly there were other options. There's a 100K version. There was a 50K version. There was all, And there were areas where if you got into trouble, you could always bail out, find another route home. You, you didn't have to commit, to yourself, commit yourself to the slog if you thought things were going wrong, which happened to us. We had, mm -hmm. to, we had to cut our ride short because... It got, and that's, I appreciate difficult. I appreciate hard, but options too, I think really show what organizers can do to, to involve a lot more riders and give those people who are having a tough day a chance to get the hell out when they, when they really should. So, And I think that all of the fondos and all of the events that are starting to show up are, you know, really raising the level, you know, the, the, you know, the rising tide is affecting all of the boats. Um, we are seeing so many great events uh, showing up all across the country now, and the, the the really innovative the first the first events out there that we're doing it. And you know, I'm, I'm I want to give a ton of credit to Bike Monkey because they seem to have unlocked the Fondo um, experience better than anyone else first, but we're seeing a lot of really good stuff out there now, yeah. uh, that has ranges of difficulty and then a fantastic starting line and post-race experience that is just amazing. Um, if you look back to, um, 15 years ago when the events were pretty much, you know, come and sort of dirt bag it from the starting line to the end and if you were lucky, maybe there were a couple of power gels and some water on a card table. <laughs> Things have changed so much since then. It's, I mean, people expect sort of a Nordstrom experience and we're getting it um, without paying a lot more in our entry fees. Um, you know, we, next time you see a race organizer, uh, give them a hug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of the most thankless jobs you'll ever see as a race organizer. Well, yeah, let's change that. Let's thank those guys. They are wonderful people putting together a service that is inexpensive and that we all enjoy. And yeah, of course, there's going to be complaints, but man, most of them do such a great job uh, on a shoestring and they're doing it for love. Mm -hmm. Well, that's uh, three, well, more than three, actually. Pretty darn hard rides from uh, your three hosts here, Fatty Patrick and Michael, but something tells me uh, the hardest is yet to come for all three of us. Uh, now, coming up, somehow we have jammed an entire group set into our feed bags, and there's an apology and a bank loan in our musettes as well next on The Pace Line.
The Pace Line, Patrick, Fatty, and Michael, and uh, we are shifting gears, and boy, do we mean shifting gears. Hey, we thought we'd, we'd see this at Sea Otter, but SRAM has debuted its newest mountain bike group. In fact, they'll probably have it at Sea Otter. We just thought they'd wait till then to, to show it off. This is that 12-speed group we told you about a few shows ago with the big 1050 cassette. Actually, it's a whole group that they call the Eagle System, and it's not just one group, it's two. They'll do it in XX1 and X01. So XX1 for XC guys, and the other for the Trail Enduro crowd. The star of the show, of course, is this cassette, 12 Cogs, a 52 beast at the top. Um, Now, the cassette, the way it's been laid out, it is the 1042, and what they've done is they just added that 50 as kind of a bailout gear. All the cogs have been mo- moved slightly closer together with that 50 also moving closer to the spokes. So a little less room for error, but SRAM says there's enough room. Of course, this also means a brand new chain, a chain that took them quite a lot of work to get done. They basically had to shave the pins a lot narrower, and it's a just massive process now to get the, the chain done. Uh, the crank set has uh, also been upgraded, um, and actually, you can upgrade to Eagle uh, without getting the crank set as long as your crank set is an XX1 that takes that direct drive uh, chain ring, which is the one that uses that, that gets on there without a spider. So you can get around some of the costs of the new Eagle system. But again, 12 speed, 10 by 50. Obviously, there's a new front shifter, the cassette. The real derailleur is another uh, feat of madness by SRAM. Um, the XX1 version of that 50, get this, guys. The cassette, except for that 50 tooth, is in gold. Bling. Hello. Mm-hmm. So quite a, a massive group set by SRAM. Um, some of what we'd heard about with this cassette and then some little add-ons. Fatty, you're a one-by guy. Does this get your attention? Does this have you thinking about... Boy, do I need that 50? Do I need that bailout gear? Is this worth an upgrade for, for your quiver? Oh, uh, let me first say, what a time to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> um, things have gotten so good. Um, and yes, I definitely am taking a good hard look at this. I live in a place where there are climbs that are incredibly intense that go on for miles and miles and miles. And there is no current one by setup that I can that I can make th- some of those climbs, you know, seven times out of ten. You know, I, I would love to have one more gear. I have thought to myself several times, I wish I had one more gear. And as it turns out, soon I'm going to have one more gear. So I'm stoked. Yeah, and I guess the good news here, Patrick, too, is that that. Massive cassette will go on current XD driver rear hub. So SRAM at least not making us go out and buy brand new wheels. They've they've wisened up here and said, yeah, current wheels, current XD driver hubs will work. Yeah, I mean, if they haven't shot, if they haven't silenced all uh, the critics of one buy with this. Uh, then I, I I don't know what will silence them. I mean, certainly you. You know, if I'm riding Eagle, I won't have any room to complain. Uh, or, or if I can't get up something, it's because I chose uh, the wrong chain ring. You know, it. I think now you've got a complete solution for one buy uh, virtually anywhere you might be living. Um, so I'm really excited to try this. Yeah, the shifting range, they say, is 500%. Puts it near... It gives you nearly as much range as um, Shimano's two by eleven, so you almost get there. That that is a big jump, the forty two to the to the fifty. But again, it's being described as a bailout gear. Of course, with the Eagle system, there is no front derailleur, and SRAM, in fact, have declared that the front derailleur, at least in mountain bike purposes and applications, is dead. They've even released a video declaring it's a death. Here's the SRAM mountain bike front derailleur obituary. In the passing of this old friend, we make room for the new, for the future. A future where we move forward faster than ever. And though occasionally we remember fondly, 
in museums, and in yellowed pages of dusty old magazines. It's time to say goodbye to the mountain bike front derailleur forever. And I would say they're not too far off, SRAM is, from saying goodbye to the front derailleur for many road bikes, too. Uh, no front derailleur on uh, mountain bikes. What does this mean to frame builders? It means a lot. They can do a lot more with their frame building, especially full suspension bikes. I mean, this opens up a whole new area for rear suspension to move if they don't have to consider placement of that front derailleur. So, SRAM and the Eagle Group coming out. I imagine uh, Sea Otter will be a big place to see this thing. Uh, another S. The big S is for Sorry. Patrick, you have some uh, comment from Specialize on this. Um, some folks may have seen this Playboy edition e-bike that was appearing in Europe. What have you learned about this? Well, first, let me say that when this story came, uh, came across my desk, um, I was surprised uh, not that someone in Europe did something sexist, but that Playboy bunnies were still a thing. I, I was honestly surprised. I didn't think that that they still existed, that that was still a thing. Um, but I decided to get in touch with them because I was kind of curious, you know, big companies make all sorts of gaffes, uh, you know, and I was just kind of curious, how did this happen? So I got in touch with Slade Olson, uh, who's a global director of marketing uh, for Specialized. And then also in my call was uh, Katie Sue Gruner, uh, who handles uh, PR on a global basis for Specialized, and the new uh, head of the women's product line, Vanessa Christie. Um, and it was one of those things where it, uh, the call was a, a little awkward just because it was, you know, anything they'd rather be talking about other than this. But uh, uh, Slate was, uh, you know, really direct uh, and, uh, shall we say, contrite. This is something that, you know, began in Germany uh, between Playboy and Specialized, but did come to the U.S. because it required uh, American personnel uh, to actually make the bike happen. But they said that they didn't have the internal communication in place. This would have gotten, uh, had, had, you know, marketing and PR known about this, they would actually have killed the product. Uh, a lot of people think that uh, marketing has the ability to green light product at a lot of companies. And while it's true at a couple, generally speaking, uh, marketing decisions don't drive innovation. But uh, poor choices, uh, you know, in terms of sexism or misogyny or whatever you want to uh, phrase it, um, you know, companies don't want to walk around with flat feet. And this is an occasion where had they known about this, they would have killed the project before it ever got off the ground. As it is, they're reworking that product so that what actually ends up appearing uh, in the marketplace uh, won't be the bike that was shown at the Berlin Bike Show. Um, Slate said flat up, uh, flat out, uh, this does not align with how we want to reach women. Um, and yeah, not at all. Not when you have the Ruby and the Amira. They've shown some good leadership in this area. It's important that they they not get involved with something like this. Yeah. Uh, and the big thing was that, you know, the, the, the denouement for them that, you know, okay, we need some additional communication within the company. They're a big organization now, you know, it used to be 200 people in the U S and now I think it's closer to 300. Um, you know, he also said, you know, uh, in terms of the women's market, you know, that's where we expect so much growth for our business to happen uh, through female riders. It's the kind of moment to learn from and to make sure it never happens again. Yeah. Uh, and this is not just specialized. I mean, the cycling industry has, has had a bit of a problem. It's a bit of a dude ranch, right? I mean, there's just a lot of guys and the guys have now got to wake up a little bit. I'm not just talking about specialized here. We've seen, Patrick, you've written about stuff that has happened in this industry where men in leadership roles have just not shown the type of sensitivity they need to, especially when they're trying to attract women to, to the sport. And we do. We want to see women here. And putting them in bunny suits or putting them in socks in an inappropriate way is just not, not how you do it. But it's time for the dude ranch to... To kind of step outside a little bit and, and be more welcoming, I would say. Yeah. Well, one of the challenges also here, 
you know, we need to acknowledge uh, Playboy Enterprises. It's not a drug cartel. They are, you know, a legally operating entity. Uh, and so, you know, you have to ask yourself a question, you know, you're approached by another company to do a joint promotion. Um, you know, it's, I mean, that's a weird thing. You know, it's yeah. a, it's an opportunity to reach another demographic. Um, but you know, specialized, uh, to their credit said, you know, whatever that audience is, we don't need to reach them because it's, it's reaching them at the expense of this other audience that we feel right. is more core to what we do and far more important to us long term. And it's a, a it's a, a really important statement of values. Hmm. Okay, guys, uh, on to another uh, kind of crazy situation that happened uh, not so long ago. California Parks Police investigating a shooting where three cyclists say they are pretty sure the bullets were intended for them. The three were riding the Darrington Trail in the El Dorado Hills near Folsom Lake, east of Sacramento. They were eight miles in when they heard gunshots in the distance. They kept going until they heard more shots. This time, they say the bullets whizzed right over their heads. They hunkered down for a few minutes. Then one of them yelled, don't shoot. And they stood up and sure as shooting, someone fired again. They took cover again, sat there for about 10 minutes and decided to make their escape. There are pot growers in the area, but uh, park rangers say this is not typically how pot growers deal with mountain bikers. Fatty, you end up in some, I would imagine, some fairly rural areas when you ride at times. Uh, any issue with people threatening you or shooting has just anything like this ever happened to you no nothing like that has ever happened to me i ride um more often in a park called lambert park because it's one mile away from where i live and just above lambert park is a um an area that is treated essentially as a shooting range which is perfectly legal so i'm very actually comfortable now with the sound of gunfire right around where I ride. Um, where I used to ride back in Orem, there was, in fact, a policeman's firing range. So I hear gunfire constantly where I uh, where I ride. And the fact is, um, around here, it's just normal. Uh, uh, I, I have been offered more beers by guys on horses with rifles um, that I meet on the trail than by anyone else. Um, it, it really comes down to who respects whom and what kind of res- what kind of culture of respect is there. And a guy on a bike can be a jerk, and a guy on a horse can be a jerk, and both can also be awesome. Um, it's you know I, I I've never had that kind of uh, dangerous thing happen, and but I. You know, I, I feel for these guys if that was what was actually happening. I, I would like to throw in a possible caveat, which is several times I have been up riding in Lambert Park where the, and a policeman is parked at the top of the park. And I've said, what's going on, officer? Because, you know, I want to know if I need to get out, of te- you know, get off the park for something that is going on. He says, oh, another person called thinking that they were being shot at because they heard gunfire and you know he just kind of laughed and i was like oh yeah well the first time i heard gunfire while i was in the park i was scared too i don't know what this person's situation was like but any close gun shot sounds scary and sounds like it was for you until you get used to the fact that it might have been being fired in a completely different direction and what you heard coming toward you might have in fact been an echo I don't know if that was the case here. It might yeah. not have been. I'm just saying that's my experience. Yeah. I, I hear gunfire four times out of six that I am out riding my bike. Hmm. Okay. Well, California Parks Police are going to look into it nonetheless. I mean, obviously, they want to know if somebody's shooting a gun in a California state park because that would sure. be a problem as well. Right, right. Um, if you saw a video online, by the way, of a woman in New Zealand screaming at cyclists while behind them in her car, Police say it was a hoax. This was the stupid thing someone did. What the f*** is wrong with you? Oh my god! You give cyclists a bad name. Do you even hear uh, Police say the woman is an actress and a person who put the video together is some internet clown who likes to create viral videos. One of the cyclists in the video say police told him the creator has some sort of pay-per-click online business. 
And that was the motivation for creating this stupid piece of garbage. But we just wanted to let you know that it was all a hoax if you saw that online. All right, guys, finally here, um, interesting thing from Bay Federal Credit Union. They are in the Santa Cruz area, and the credit union is offering bike loans. They will lend up to $5,000 for the purchase of a bike and accessories. A little fine print, of course, in every loan. The range of the loan is about three years, 36 months. Payments, about 30 bucks per $1,000 borrowed. That's at an interest rate of about 7%. Approval, of course, based on your credit history. Minimum loan is five hundred, with a max of five thousand. Purchase for new and used bikes available. Financing up to one hundred percent, and up to ten percent of purchases of uh, accessories, add-ons for your bike. Again, that maximum term thirty-six months. Pretty interesting idea, and I guess Patrick, especially as e-bikes are coming in, uh, you know, getting into an e-bike not a cheap proposition but can be considered transportation and alone might help get people moving forward on an e-bike. Yeah, I think this is terrific. It's something I actually advocated uh, to folks at both high bike and specialized that they need to work with uh, GE Capital or something like that. You know, when you start thinking about trying to add something uh, to your garage that isn't just more fun, but is a way to keep your car parked, uh, I think, you know, lowering the bar to entry uh, with a credit program like this is just tremendous. Uh, I I would be inclined to use it to get like, you know, um, uh, some sort of utility bike, you know, with an e-assist so that I could cart kids around more easily. Fatty, for you and I who like to expand our, we're the N plus one crowd, right? Is that you and I? I mean, <laughs> N plus two in my case, N, but yes. <laughs> I can give you the number to Bay Federal Credit Union if you'd like. If you'd uh, like to. I, I'm not. I'm not necessarily a bank guy, but to me that seems like a short term and not that great of a rate. I like the idea better than what the description of what your terms are. Right. That's that's a lot higher uh, f- for a you know for a lot less money than you would pay on a comparable car loan. So I don't right. get it. Oh, okay. Um. But you can get yourself into a bike and a bike loan via Bay Federal Credit Union if you need a little help in that. It comes out of their personal loan department. So I think mm-hmm. it, some of this is marketing here. They're trying to attract a crowd probably. But uh, it is specific. You know, They do say that they'll loan up to five grand for the purchase of a bicycle. Awesome. All right, There guys. you go. That'll get you a wheel set. <laughs> the pace line, of course, is uh, interest-free. It's an interest-free podcast. There's no... There's no extras, no add-ons, no points. Did you just involved. say we're an interest-free podcast? Yeah. No, we are. A low, how about a low interest? No, we're not even a low interest podcast. We're a we? very high we're interest tra- podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I'm trying well, we're not too a hard. Today. I'm trying. I, we did the hardest ride today. I'm just fatigued again. We're two for uh, the pace line rolling to a stop here. We want to, of course, thank uh, Fatty with the FatCyclist.com and the Fatty Cash for being here. Fatty, what do you have uh, coming up on both of those platforms? Oh, I am entering an era of accountability. Every post on the FatCyclist.com blog is going to be having three things. Uh, What my current weight is, because I have work to do there and I'm hoping my readers will keep me accountable. I'm going to be talking about how I am doing in my book that I am writing, uh, Fight Like Susan. And I am going to be talking about, holy cow, something else. And I don't even remember what it is, but I, I wrote it down somewhere. It, it, I guess it's a bad sign when you can't even remember what your goals are. Ooh. <laughs> and, of course, uh, Red Kite Prayer, the other reason the pace line is in existence Patrick Brady, um, in addition to the Gaba Castelli jersey we talked about earlier and those fabulous booties, what else are on the pages of RKP? Uh, well, it, it won't be appearing terribly soon, but uh, I just uh, assembled yesterday a an Alchemy Atlas road bike that I'm pretty excited to get out on. So American-made carbon fiber. Uh, this is a bike I've had my eye on for a while, and I'm, I'm really eager to see how it performs uh, in the hills around me. Mm-hmm. You can, uh, again, find the Pace Line podcast on redkiteprayer.com as well. We are on Stitcher, and we are on, what's that other little place called? Oh, iTunes. Yeah, that little uh, Apple facility. So check us out there. Um, Leave I a review. 
And what's that? Leave a review. It oh, matters. Yeah. Leave a for, review, some comments. For show crying links, out loud. Yeah, show links are also on Red Kite Prayer. If you want to go back and check out anything we've talked about on the show, as Fatty said, comment on the show too. Happy to hear what folks uh, think about the show, the pace line. So uh, for Patrick Brady and Fatty, I'm Michael Houghton. We'll talk to you the next time on the pace line. Today, we're here to say goodbye to a fixture of our sport. An icon whose time had finally come.